morning. If you could join me in uh, turning in your pew Bibles or your own Bibles uh, to page 913. It's Galatians 1. We're going to start with verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for for this day and bringing us together again, and we thank you for your your holy word and uh, for this record that you've given us of how your gospel um, began and was spread and how it wasn't just something made up by man. And I pray that we would have ears to hear what you want us to hear, and eyes to see what you want us to see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, as always, to our musicians and our folks in the booth and our folks in the nursery and our folks that set up our food for later, folks who vacuum and clean bathrooms and all of that. These things don't just happen. You know, we realize that a lot of times when somebody was sick and we didn't know it and they, they didn't vacuum or you're going, why does that spot look bare? Well, because Roger's not well this morning, so certainly pray the Lord to be with Roger. Well, thank you to everybody who can contribute to your time to make these kinds of things happen. I hope the snow didn't throw you off too much uh, this week. It only took me a half hour to shovel my driveway and I enjoyed every second of that, I can assure you really didn't mind it at all. It's a good exercise. So, but I, I hope it didn't throw you off too much. And I know you heard Marty read that whole text. And, uh, you know, compared to the last couple of weeks, I wouldn't fault you if you were, uh, if you looked at how many verses that was and went, oh goodness, are we going to go long today? No such luck, I'm afraid. No such luck, I'm afraid. And I wouldn't be that mean to our nursery workers either, right? <laughs> That's who, that's who really suffers when the church, when, you know, you feel like, man, he's been talking a long time. Those guys back there are like, I'm hungry. These kids are hungry. We're all tired of each other, right? So we won't go long today. You know, all scripture is, is profitable uh, for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And it's, it, all of it is spiritually 
nourishing. You don't, don't care what part of Scripture you're in. You might be in one of those chapters in First Chronicles. It's a big old long uh, list of names. It's still profitable. Uh, it's all spiritually nourishing. Uh, but just like with physical food, not every verse or passage is equally dense with those, we could say, nutrients, if you will. Sometimes, sometimes you know, one verse is like a whole side of beef. I mean, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We could, we could spend hours just meditating on that and dwelling on that, encouraging one another with that, being convicted by that, and so forth and so on. And then, you know, other times the Lord might give us 10 or more verses that are more like, you know, something like an appetizer or a salad. And I understand those analogies aren't perfect, but analogies aren't intended to be. But I think you, I think you get my meaning here. I think you get the idea this morning with the length of our text compared to what we've done the past couple of weeks. Uh, but since I just mentioned analogies and metaphors and that sort of thing, uh, we're going to be back to a straight path on our hike through Galatians. We're back just kind of on a, on a straight shot there. Uh, there's not really any bumpiness, uh, you know, like we saw last week. We don't really, you know, encounter the pitfalls that we might later in the book or, uh, you know, no rocky crags, no places to turn your ankle, you know, as long as you're paying attention to what you're doing. Uh, that said... We, of course, just like when we walk down the aisle at the end of church, we do need to pay attention lest we trip over our own feet. Not that I've ever done anything like that, but I do hear that people do. And so we want to pay attention to what the Lord has for us. You know, our text this week, it's going to answer the question, where does this all come from? Where does this all come from? Just like a straight, a flat portion of a hiking trail remains part of that trail, Despite the lack of challenge, this text is one we want to walk through to experience all that what Galatians has. And so it answers that question, where does this all come from? God himself has supplied the gospel. That's our idea this morning. That's the answer to that question. That's, it's going to be Paul's argument. God himself has supplied the gospel. And this idea is going to be key for the Galatians to understand, and it's, it's no less key for us as well. You know, I don't reckon in our church that I'd get a whole lot of pushback from people if I say, there is but one way to God. There's just one way. I don't, I don't reckon that would be terribly controversial. I don't detect a whole lot of confusion about that proposition here at Grace Church. But the question, of course, is, what is that way? What is that way? What is that one way? And how do we make sure we don't lose our way? So we want to remember that God himself has supplied the gospel. You know, right here, verses 11 and 12, what you're going to see is the gospel's origin. That's the gospel's origin there in Galatians 1, 11, and 12. So let me read that for us again. He says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Who taught Paul the gospel? Who is it that shared the gospel with Paul? Again, sometimes the Sunday school answer is the exact right answer, and that's Jesus. He says it was another people who told him. It was Jesus himself. And this is, if you're wondering about this, this is probably a reference to Acts chapter 9, where Paul is confronted by Jesus as he was heading to Damascus to 
persecute the Christians there. And you don't need to turn to Acts 9, but again, it is indeed Acts chapter 9 if you want to look that up later. Paul also gives his testimony another couple of times about this experience later on in the book of Acts. But there Paul was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus in a vision. Bright light, a booming voice. And by the time a man named Ananias of Damascus, this is a different Ananias than the one in Acts chapter 5, because that one's dead at that point. But by the time Ananias of Damascus reaches him, we know Paul is a believer, because Ananias refers to him as brother, which is not a term early Christians threw around carelessly. We could paraphrase Paul to be saying here, the gospel that I teach is the gospel I believed when Christ himself confronted me in a vision over my sin. I want to draw something out here because if you're keeping score at home, if you're paying attention, you might have a legitimate and very important question. How can I, me, Andrew, how can I harp on people wanting to have supernatural and mystical experiences, which is what I did last week, when Paul had a vision of Christ himself. How can I do that? And if you picked up on that, if you're asking that question, good, because that means you're following the flow of the book that we're in. And I want to quickly point out that this is, you know, this actually has a contrast. There's a contrast of Paul's direct vision of Christ on the road to Damascus with the proposed idea of an esoteric experience, a heavenly visitation of some sort. Paul's experience, this experience, the supernatural experience that Paul had, is what yielded his knowledge of this gospel, the gospel that we're going to preach today, that we also have explained and applied in multiple ways in the New Testament, even foretold, foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The contrast is this. All that being true, as we said last week, more often than not, when someone claims some kind of mystical experience, you know, the kind of thing that you might see on a on a show about, you know, angelic encounters or something like that, or a YouTube video. Usually what happens there is the person comes up with some kind of weird spiritual idea out of it. Not anything that's going to match, that's going to be congruent with the teaching of the Scriptures. See the contrast there? See the difference in Paul's vision and the usual claim that you might hear of a supernatural experience or angelic visitation and so forth? See, our main idea is that God Himself supplies the gospel. This isn't any man's doing, not even the apostles. Nobody had a dream because they ate something funny and came up with an idea out of that. And those apostles, they were sent by the Lord himself. Paul was sent out by the Lord himself. And Jesus, interestingly, he would even point to his own father when he talked about people believing in him. I'll have the text on the screen. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. But this will be from John chapter 12. Jesus is going to talk about this. This is the gospel of John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, if you want to know the whole reference, we'll also have the scripture references down there at the bottom of the screen. But Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to Save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me 
has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That's from John 12. If you want to read, that's actually part of an even much bigger interaction that Jesus has with some people where he explains this even further. So Jesus says to his people in his own day that believing in him wasn't some action that was merely about the assertions of a man in Judea, but instead that he himself had come from God. And believing in him brought a person to God, the very same God that these people that he was speaking to thought they already knew. And so it will be with the Apostle Paul as well. He's not looking for anything other than that people would believe in Christ and so be reconciled to God. It's God's message delivered in His chosen way through people who possess His Word. And since that's the case, that being true, think about this. You're hearing this this morning because God purposed for you to hear the good news. You're hearing this because God purposed for you to hear the good news. It's remarkable, you know, that song has the line, all my life you've been faithful. And I always reflect on that, all my life you've been faithful. You mean the 16 years I lived in sin and darkness before meeting the Lord? He was being faithful? Yeah, which is remarkable to me because I was a pain in the neck. Why would you be faithful to me? You know, my parents had, had to be. They were, they were my parents, right? But the Lord did that because He wanted to. The Lord did that because He wanted to. And so if you don't know the Lord today, this is one of His actions of faithfulness right now as He has brought you here with the purpose for you to hear the good news. And so the question is, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? This is the day the Lord has made. And on this day, you're hearing His Word. Eternal God has set this appointment for you. Maybe you're glad for that. Maybe you're already kind of going, wow, that sounds great. Maybe you're not sure why you're hearing this at all because you didn't really want to. You're not sure why you showed up at 355 Paper Mill Road in Newark, Delaware this morning or streamed this later, listened to it on a podcast. Either way, you're hearing the good news of Christ because God eternal wanted you to hear it. And the question remains, what will you do in response? If you never put your trust in Jesus, if you've not thrown yourself on the abundant mercy, life and in His life, given for yours and your place, that God's own judgment against you would be satisfied, I have good news. You can do that today. God appointed that you would hear this and know that today. So the question is, will you respond to Him in faith and in trust? Now, that sounds like the sermon's over. It's not, I'm afraid. It's not that short, right? But I know what you're thinking. But if you're already walking with Jesus, let's say, you know, you're going, you know, Andrew, that's exactly right. You know, somebody needed to hear that this morning. But, I, you know, is there not a word for me? I already walk with Jesus. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. What, what, how do I, how am I supposed to respond? I can't respond for the very first time. Will you let that refresh you? Will you let that refresh you, that God at one point did set a time and a date for you to hear the news and believe, and He set this date for you to hear again and be reminded of exactly what happened. 
Christ's life given for yours. That whatever went on this past week, whatever happens this week, whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever that thought is that's in your head that you're trying to push out, because you're going, I'm, I'm in church, I'm supposed to be listening to the preacher, and here I'm thinking about X, Y, or Z. God set this appointment for you. Be encouraged. Let it refresh you. That God thinks of you in that way. He knows that you deal with distractions. Listen, when I listen to other preachers, I get distracted too. You know, there's, there's no pass that you get on. They don't, they don't hand you a preacher's card and say, and now you'll never be distracted when somebody else is talking ever again. doesn't happen. I wish it did. I wish it did. God knows you would be, but he brought you here. Let that refresh you this morning. Rejoice and be glad because this good news is already in your heart. This good news is already in your heart. Let it strengthen you to continue to press on through the challenges that each of you face. You know, we, res- we regularly experience physical challenges. Sickness, injury, pain, sometimes all three at the same time and more. You know, for some of you, we've been praying over situations at work. Those are certainly challenges. And work challenges because we work not out of the, you know, goodness of our heart, but because we like to draw a paycheck, because we like to buy food and eat it. We like to be able to pay the mortgage or the rent. Work challenges, those are always bound up in financial challenges, aren't they? Sometimes we even have relational challenges among ourselves, family, friends, even even in marriages, right? Whatever these things are, whatever that challenge is, or maybe, maybe whatever that couple of dozen challenges is, right? It doesn't have to be one thing. Be refreshed, Christian believer, because the good news of Jesus is already in your heart if you've repented and believed. Be refreshed. Your biggest need, reconciliation with your maker, that's already been met. And you're secure in him eternally. Your sin will not condemn you because it has already been condemned in Christ. That's why we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Because the cross counted for you and it still counts for you. It still counts for you, and it will never be taken away from you. Use this to press through your challenges. Let the fact that you did indeed, you had sin, but that sin was atoned for, let that strengthen you to put one foot in front of the other this week. Let it be the thing that allows you to shut out temptation this week, because sin will not have the final say over you. And so it shouldn't have a say on this day as well. God himself, see, God himself has supplied the gospel. God himself has supplied the gospel to us. And this is our reason to rejoice. This is our reason to continue to put away sin from ourselves. This is the reason to resist temptation when it comes. We don't earn God's favor in these things, but because God has already favored us by supplying the gospel, we are overcomers of these things. So up next, what you're going to see is a really quick picture of a pre-gospel Paul. I'm calling it pre-gospel Paul. Just that there was a time before you believed in Jesus, before I believed in Jesus. There was a time in Paul's life before he believed. And he tells us a little bit about pre-gospel Paul in Galatians 1, 13 through 14. He says this, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Why did Paul, or we often call him Saul when we refer to his 
pre-gospel days. Why did he make that remark last, last week about not trying to please men? Well, it's because before, that's exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to please men. He was trying to please the religious leadership of his day. He was rising through the ranks of leadership of the Pharisees that we often talk about when we talk about the ministry of Jesus and his conflict with them. He doesn't mention Pharisees by name here in Galatians 1, uh, but if you check Philippians 3, 5 later, that's where he tells us, I was a Pharisee. That's what I did. That's who I was. That's how I saw myself. And if there was ever a man who was passionate about the traditions of Judaism in the Old Testament law. That was Paul in his pre-gospel life. He was present the day the early Christian Stephen was legally murdered by being stoned to death. He was the one who breathed threats and murder towards Jesus' people, according to Acts 9.1. That passion gained him favor among the religious leaders of his day. This is going to be key as we move on in Galatians. He, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the persecutor, becomes the one who argues against the adoption of old covenant practices when Christ had already established the new covenant. If anyone was going to bring something inappropriate from Judaism over into the Christian life, into the Christian faith, you know, a rite, R-I-T-E, rite, a ceremony or an observance, it would have been Paul. He would have been the one to do it, and he didn't. We'll talk more about that was, what that was in question here in Galatians as we move forward through it. But he was zealous for the traditions of his people. And they were seeking to strictly obey the Old Testament law. That's why they had so much respect. They were strictly adhering to it, at least they thought. But in obeying the traditions of the fathers, as he calls it, he was not in obedience to the revelation of God that was in Christ Jesus. So you've got here another contrast, but this one's more subtly stated. Paul didn't receive the gospel from man, but from Christ. And all that he has rejected, he didn't receive from Christ, but from man. So let me say that again. Paul didn't receive the gospel from man. He received the gospel from Christ. And all that he has rejected, he did not receive from Christ, but from men. He holds on to what he got from Christ and released what he got from men. And the Galatian churches, they actually knew that. And as people in the first century, they would have been keenly aware. They would have been keenly aware of the divide between Jew and Gentile and that by coming to Christ, they were indeed seeking to worship the God of historic Israel who had now revealed himself in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is the exact right man to make the case against the import of tradition and old covenant observance into the practice of being a disciple of Christ. He's actually, I was reflecting on this a lot this week, he's the perfect guy to write this, to make this case, to make this argument. Because if somebody was going to do the thing that these Galatians are doing, it would have been him. And he didn't do that. And all this holds together, of course, because God himself supplied the gospel. We can't say it enough. God himself has supplied the gospel. This was not Paul the Apostle innovating, but instead delivering to the Galatians what he got from God himself. So he's told them he received the gospel, he taught them from a revelation of Jesus himself. Then he told them that if somebody was going to be passionate about old covenant rites, observances, ceremonies, and so forth, he once was that guy 
seeking to please his spiritual leaders as they held on to the traditions of their own forebears. And this next longer section, the, you know, what's going to make up the bulk of the text today, what it's going to do is confirm the origin of his gospel teaching. We'll see the origin confirmed in Galatians 1, 15 through 24. Like I said, this is a bigger chunk of the text, but it's him recounting his travels to make a point. It's not that we needed to know his itinerary and keep track of him per se. So we don't need to get hung up with, on where he is on the map at a given place in time. What we need to see is the point that he's making by telling us about this as he writes these words. Let me read those again. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Again, the places aren't as important as the people who are in those places. You can go look up Syria and Cilicia on a map another time. First, he mentioned the purpose that he was given by God to preach among the Gentiles, which the Galatians would have been. They would have been Gentiles. And that's key when we think about it because commissions specifically for non-Jewish people, Paul was not told by Christ to teach them Judaism to then become Christians. Then he talks about the ones who were apostles before him kind of as a a group. And then he, he mentions Peter, who he calls Cephas here. Both Cephas and then the Greek word Petros, they mean rock or stone. Petros is where we get the name Peter. When Paul talks about Peter, he usually calls him Cephas. So if you're reading through Paul's letters and you come across that name Cephas, that's another name for Peter. When other writers refer to this man, they usually write the word Petros, which again becomes Peter in English. Uh, The Apostle John, if you're going, well, how do we know that they're the same person? The Apostle John clears this up when he uh, he uses both names for the same man in John 1.42. You can look that up again also later. Paul also mentions James. Not James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, but instead he means, he means James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would write the short letter of James, which we have sitting between Hebrews and then 1 Peter. So I go through all of this. Well, what's remarkable about all this name-dropping that Paul does is that he intends to do the opposite of what people usually do when they drop a name. What you would expect here would be that he would drop the names of the apostles to use their status to then bolster his argument. But instead, what he does is show that he did not have much contact with them at all in his early Christian life and ministry. He didn't know them. Going just a little further, what we see then is that those same early Christian leaders, they didn't actually give praise to Paul for his ministry. Instead, As an outsider of the churches in Judea, the region where Jerusalem is, they were hearing that their enemy was not one of them. They didn't congratulate him. No good job, no attaboys for Paul. They gave glory instead to God. 
They gave glory to God just as Paul did earlier in the chapter in Galatians 1.5. This is the Christian response to good news, giving God recognition that He has made this so and also thanking Him for His oversight of human activities. And so we can actually do the same thing today. Because today, this very day, God has good news for you. Today, God has good news for you. God had made promises. He made promises to people, starting all the way back in Genesis 3.15, when He told Adam and Eve, right after they had sinned, right after they'd done it, that her seed would crush the head of the deceptive snake. The whole Old Testament Scriptures, all of them, they spoke to God's people over time in many ways, all pointing towards the coming Messiah. And now that Messiah has come, and we call Him Jesus, because that's what His mama named Him. And Jesus, He was flawless, and that includes His obedience to His Father. He never, not one time did He disobey God. He didn't play the games of the so-called spiritual leaders of His day. But in his crucifixion, the disobedience of mankind, that rebellion was put on him. God the Father didn't leave him in death, though, did he? He was again raised to life, being put in a grave for three days. And when you, when the Galatians, and when you take seriously and agree with God's assessment that your sin makes you unworthy of fellowship with him and then totally worthy of his judgment and you recognize that the fulfillment of these promises is in His Son, Jesus, who is Lord, and that He is the only means of escaping judgment, a marvelous thing happens. The flawless obedience of Jesus, Jesus' own flawlessness, gets counted to you. God the Father knows you didn't earn it. He knows that. He knows His Son earned it. He also knows that this was His own plan. He came up with this and that he desired to be able to credit Jesus' flawless obedience to you and to count Jesus' death as satisfying God's own wrath and judgment against you. And you don't add to it. What could you possibly add to that? What could the Galatians have possibly added to that? That's why he was astonished last week. You don't try to attain it through an action or an attitude. You believe this is enough, and it is. Try to claim it as yours by right or by any other means, and you'll lose it all. That's why Paul could say, I'm astonished that you're abandoning him who called you. This is the good news that God has appointed you to hear today. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Just three little words. Christ is enough. That's the good news. Christ Jesus in your place is enough for God. And if that is enough for you, he counts for you. And it's not any more complicated than that. So if you're not sure if you're following Jesus or not, or if you know that you're not following Jesus, here's the question. What do you make of the fact that eternal God entered into history to provide the good news of Christ to you and set the appointment for you to hear and know Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's God in human flesh. And everything that we've said about Him this morning so far is true. And this is the gospel that Paul learned from Jesus, and that's the gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago down through history and also this day, today. So what do you make of it? 
What do you make of it? It's the same question as before. What do you make of it? How do you respond? And if you're saying, I don't know, I'm not wagging my finger at you, but I do need to let you know, I need to give you the warning that that can only be a tentative, a temporary answer. You don't want to stand before the Lord one day and say, yeah, you know, God, I just never could make up my mind when it comes to the crucified Savior being enough. If Christ's suffering for you leaves you undecided, then what you're actually doing is assenting to the verdict already given, and that's guilty as charged for being unworthy of God. So what do you make of it? What do you make of Jesus? What do you make of his life given in your place? And if you are saying, I understand what you're saying, Andrew, but right now I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. That's why I'm here this morning. Come talk to me. Come talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. Talk, talk, to, talk to whoever invited you. But you need to have an answer. What will you make of the life of Christ given in your place? For those who trust Jesus, if you're already walking with him, if you're going, yeah, people, you know, I'm praying for that right now, Pastor, because people need to have an answer to that question. That's you. You trust Jesus. If you're saying, yeah, that's exactly what I'm banking on, then there's something for you to remember. There's something for me and you to, to remember. And we need to remind ourselves of this because we're so forgetful. When you speak the good news, when you speak the gospel to other people, and the thing that we're all afraid of happens and they reject it, which, you know, a lot of times doesn't look, at people, look, look like people yelling at you. Sometimes it just looks like people not caring. And it gets awkward, right? But when that happens, when you're rejected, it's not actually you who are rejected, is it? It's not you. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. It feels like it is you. It feels that way. I know it feels that way. And the other person might even think that that's the case. But you're the messenger. You're the news deliverer. Not the message sender or the news maker. When you appeal to someone to turn away from their sin and believe in Christ and you're rejected or rebuffed or ignored, it feels like it was you, but it wasn't. It's Jesus who was rejected. See, when Jesus appeared to Paul as he was on his way to Damascus to make havoc among the Christians there, do you know what Jesus first said to Paul? Do you recall this? This is so interesting to me that Jesus says it this way, because this wasn't what I would have said. But Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus said. When Paul was killing and imprisoning Christians in his pre-gospel days, Jesus took that personally. He took it personally. The way Jesus' people are dealt with, that's taken personally by the Lord. This is the same Savior who personally appointed that you would hear the good news. So it's not too shocking when we think about it. So when you're rejected, don't worry about you taking it personally because the eternal Son of God, He's already done that and He will settle all accounts. You don't have to worry about that. And I say that because we do want to see our community come and worship with us. If you're here because you've been invited to come here by somebody, it's because they care about you. Because they care about you. We don't have any desire to pat ourselves on the back for being such a good church. Guys that want to build empires under steeples, they want to grow the church to grow their fame and all that. I can't stand that stuff. That's one of the first things that I looked when the Lord put it on my heart to, to contact Grace Church to come here. If I had gotten a whiff of that, no way. I can't stand that. 
But it's not because we want to pat ourselves on the back or grow an empire. It's because we want to be able to glorify God because he's showing grace and mercy to more people that Jesus' cross would count for them because we care about our community and that is the ultimate concern that we can have for anyone. But we're so fearful. We, we often, f- we're fearful that we'll say it wrong. What if I try to say it and it comes out wrong or I mess it up or, or we do like Moses did? I, I'm not a good speaker. All those may be valid. We, we do flub sometimes. We, we do say stuff and, you know, we get ourselves into awkward situations and nobody likes that. We'd probably almost rather be yelled at than it be awkward. You know, I remember a friend of mine, or excuse me, a student of mine. I guess she's a friend now. She's grown up. So a friend student of mine one time told me that she tried to tell somebody about Jesus at school. It's a few years back. You know, she said, you know, I tried to tell this girl about Jesus, and this girl just laughed in my face. That same student, she had a, a younger brother who became a very outspoken Christian, and his friends on his baseball team would sometimes mock him and ask if he was going to preach at them. We know this happens. This happens. We know the world often doesn't want to hear it. We also know that when we really think about it, that these kind of experiences that we had being laughed at or ignored or something like that doesn't even whisper at what our brothers and sisters in other places and other parts of the world, what they deal with. So let me put this appeal to you. Let me put this appeal to you as an application of this text this morning, given that God himself has given us the gospel and there's good news for you today. God has appointed that you hear it. Would you personally invite someone to church? Would you do this? Invite somebody to our church between now and between Easter Sunday. Between now and Easter Sunday. You know, don't do it for me. Don't do it for me. Galatians 1.10, we're not trying to please men, and that includes the preacher. But do it because God has supplied the gospel to you. And I don't mean leave a tract or something of that nature on a table if you go out to eat. But I mean really ask somebody. Really ask somebody if they would join us for worship. Maybe Easter Sunday, maybe a Sunday before that. Just invite them. If you want to talk to a server at a restaurant, don't leave a tract. Say, hey, do you have somewhere to be on Easter? We'd love for you to come to our church. We'd love to see you there. You know, maybe this is a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's an acquaintance. You don't have to have this big, theologically robust spiel. Obviously, I encourage you to explain the gospel. Explaining the gospel is great. I encourage you to do that. But for now, my appeal to you this morning is, would you invite someone to come to church? Would you be the one that God uses to set that appointment for that man or that woman, that child, to hear the good news for them that day? Maybe you just say, come here, the new preacher. Still feels new, right? Still, have, still feels new. You know, you can frolic here. You can tell them you think I, I look weird and you want them to come and confirm that. <laughs> you know, he's always doing weird stuff with his hands or something. I don't know. He's got a funny accent. You pick. You're not closing a sale, nothing like that. You're making an invitation to, uh, to steal from a girl Kelly and I overheard one time is, I have given you an invitation, not a summons. Make an invitation. That's all you're doing. Make an invitation. And if you get turned down, if you come up to me next week and you say, you know, preacher, I tried. Andrew, I tried, and it was awkward, and it was weird, just like you said. It was going to be weird, and they don't want to come. 
or they gave you the kind of socially acceptable, yeah, you know, maybe, uh, and they won't really answer the question because we know people do that, right? That's the nice way of saying no. Be encouraged because you made an effort. You made an effort. These things, the results are always in the Lord's hands, and we know that in our heads, but we often don't feel it in our hearts. Make the effort, and if, if you get shot down or ignored or whatever it is, God knows you made the effort, and he's pleased with that. So would you give it a shot? And if you get turned down now, you've got a person you can pray for or continue to pray for. Reaching our community, you know, we all love to hear the stories about, you know, this man preached or they did this kind of music or these ladies were praying or something like that, and people started coming in droves. And we love those stories. Those are good stories. I like those stories too. But the way that this has happened throughout church history, more often than not, is people were reached one at a time. The gospel came to a man, it came to a lady, one at a time. It came into a little child's heart. And we don't have to wait around to start doing one person at a time, one invitation at a time. So I hope you'll give it a try. Sometime between today and Easter Sunday, which is March 31st, would you offer someone a personal invitation to come to church with you and worship with us? I hope you will. I'm planning to do this too. Let's close our time and I'll go ahead and pray. Father God, I do pray that we would feel emboldened, confident, so then walk out on that confidence, which is not in ourselves, but on your spirit, on Christ raised from the dead, on the fact that you appointed a day for us to hear the gospel and appointed for us to believe and that you've done this the world over. We, talk, we sung about the, the, the elect of every nation today. And that you would, would we have the confidence that you might just use us to set that invitation that one more person might hear, one more person might trust Christ, one more person might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light that they would know the truth and be set free, that they would walk in abundance of life that we have in Christ. Not the easiness of life. For so many people, when they trust Christ, life here on this earth actually gets harder. And we pray that you would be with people, especially in places where trusting Christ is, is not, not only not popular, but is, is violently opposed. We thank you that we don't have to deal with that, generally speaking, Lord. And so I pray for all of us here that we would push over the awkwardness, we would push over the self-confidence, we would remember that the results are in your hands. Say, hey, friend, how would you feel about joining me for church on Sunday? God, we're all here because somebody, whether it was mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, a friend, a neighbor, somebody invited us to come follow Christ. They did that because they cared first of all about him and secondly about us. That that cross would count for us. So would you put in us the same heart? Help us remember, Lord, that we don't add to your word. Not even inviting somebody to come to church or presenting the gospel to somebody. Not even that adds to what Jesus has done. We just point at it and say, look at how great he is. Would you give us that confidence, Lord? 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.